1: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at ChoiceHotels.com, where travels come true.
2: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into Scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey Tracy, do you want to time travel quite a ways today? I do. Put on whatever outfit works for that. Um, that's comfy. So we're traveling back in time about a thousand years or so to Viking Denmark. And we've talked about before, uh, it's come up kind of in passing that the word Viking gets used to uh, kind of lump together a lot of different things. So we're not going to talk about Viking things a whole lot. Just know that this falls under that category. Well, and sometimes uh,
0: we will get emails from people that say, can you do a podcast on the history of the Vikings? And that answer Is no, because. Well, it would be an entirely
1: new, um, podcast brand. Uh
0: huh. (laughs) It would be a whole series. A hundred part series called The History of the Vikings. It would be great. There's a
1: lot of stuff. And part of it, as we'll discuss today, is that a lot of that history is still contentiously debated among historians. Uh, so, I mean, it's rich and fertile soil to do an entire podcast about, but, uh you know, we cover all kinds of history. So today we're doing this one little narrow bit, and we're talking about the Yelling Dynasty of Denmark. Uh, if that's something you want to go do a search for on your own, Yelling is spelled with a J at the beginning, so it's like jelling, if you uh, look at it and you're normally a um, an American English speaker. So the Yelling Dynasty is often referred to as the beginning of the Danish monarchy. And that point, just as many points that we'll talk about, talk about is argued by historians, and rightly so, because there were certainly people there who had leadership of some sort before that. Uh, But this is when it first started being called Denmark. And this is a time and place in history where our knowledge is really pretty fuzzy. So
0: keep all of that in mind as we go forward. So part of the problem with this particular piece of history stems from the fact that around the year 1200, Two different historians wrote the first known written accounts of Denmark's early royalty. Both Sven Agasson and Saxo Grammaticus describe the people and events involved in great detail, but those two accounts contradict each other in a whole lot of instances. We don't even know how much of the writing in each case is the recording of oral history that had been handed down, which would automatically include some shifts in its accuracy. Uh, versus how much could been could have been author embellishment and the result of viewing the information through their own contemporary lenses. So it's, there's just a lot of fuzziness.
1: <laughs> there is. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm sometimes reluctant to do things from this period. I feel like we have to caveat everything and go, well, you don't know this for sure, so that will happen. Just brace. Uh And to start off in a nebulous place, we do not know when Gorm de Gamle, or Gorm the Old, who is often cited as the first king of Denmark, was born. Uh, as a personal side note, that is Gorm G-O-R-M. For my nerdy friends out there, if you think I didn't type this G-O-R-N every single time initially, <laughs> uh rest assured that I did. But there is absolutely no Star Trek reference in this. <laughs> Uh, estimates for Gorm's birth date are all over the place from the late 800s through the early 900s and we do not know as well who Gorm's mother was.
0: Gorm's father, Hardiknud, uh, had left his son an estate of land that he had claimed through force and Gorm augmented the family's property holdings. This was a time when Denmark wasn't one United Kingdom. It was just this assortment of provinces and each was governed by a chief who served as its king, Eventually, Gorm had accumulated a really significant chunk of land.
1: And Gorm married a woman named Tira, uh, or Tire, sometimes you'll hear it pronounced. In both the Sven Agasson and Saxo Grammaticus accounts, she came from England, although we do not know if that is accurate. The identity of her parents is unknown, uh, although she may well have been part of a powerful or wealthy family. There's certainly some indication of that, and thus that she was strategically important in marriage. Uh, Her father has been guesting at as any number of historically significant figures, from Ethelred of Wessex to the king of Jutland at the time, who was
0: Harold Clack. According to legend, Gorm promised to give Tira all of Denmark as a mourning gift. That is a gift given by a husband to his wife the morning after their marriage is consummated. But according to customs of other Scandinavian cultures at the time, the mourning gift was actually inherited by the wife only after the husband's death. So Kind of keep this bit tucked away in your memory, because toward the end of this episode, we're going to talk about this establishment of lineage and inheritance.
1: Gorm and Tira had children, and depending on what source you look at, the number and sexes of those children vary. You might see only Harold Blotten, Gormson, listed as a son, or Harold and his brother, Knud Dana Ast. Sometimes there's another son, and on occasion there's also a sister mentioned, so somewhere between one and four children. According to one legend, if it mentions the brother Knud, Knud was killed in a skirmish with another power, and Tira had the entire hall of the royal house either painted black or hung with black cloth. And walking in and seeing that darkened hall was how Gorm found out the news of his son's demise.
0: As a side note, the name Blatin in Harold's name translates to Bluetooth. We don't know why exactly he had that name, although the most common speculation is that he had a visible a visibly damaged or rotten tooth. And yes, we're going to come back to that name in modern technology later on.
1: And I should mention I should have mentioned it at the top of the episode uh this was suggested by a listener, I believe on social, and I don't have the name attached to it, so whoever you are, thank you because this was lovely and he specifically mentioned it because of the name Bluetooth so going back in uh when his queen Tira died, Gorm had a rune stone erected in her memory. This stone is significant in that it's the first known time a king of Denmark referenced his country by that name. It's also the oldest known example of a Danish king's words. And this stone refers to Tira as the pride of Denmark. Sometimes you'll also see it written out as the adornment of Denmark.
0: Some histories, though, indicate that Tira actually outlived her husband. There are also medieval texts that are really unclear as to this whole timeline. Tira's impact on the narrative of Denmark's early history as a monarch is also characterized in just a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's credit, she's credited with saving the country from conquest. Sometimes she's credited with saving Denmark from a famine. She's also, in some writings, cast as the architect of a fortifying wall along Denmark's southern border, although archaeologists have determined that the wall that the tale refers to was built long before her time as queen uh, in the early 700s or maybe even earlier.
1: And so we don't know the exact year of Tyra's death, but because Gorm referred to himself as king on her rune stone, and again, as we said, this is all nebulous, and we're going to talk a lot about the stones and the timeline in a moment. Uh, but based on his rune stone, it appears to have been after his reign began, which was 934. And in the winter of 958-959, Gorm the Old died. And at the time, he was possibly laid to rest in the same burial mound as Queen Tira, now known as the North Mound. But again, we do not know the exact location of Tira's burial, so this is another one of those hazy points. We are going to come back to Tira's resting place and this stone, as I said, in just a bit.
0: Harold Blatten Gormson became the king of Denmark when Gorm, when Gorm died. And at the time, the Viking kingdom was polytheistic. But Harold perhaps knew that converting to Christianity would open the door to trade with other European powers, and so he decided that the Danes would be Christians.
1: And as with all aspects of this story, this conversion to Christianity is characterized in multiple different ways in historical writings. By some accounts, he was more or less forced into transitioning the country's religion to Christianity ever after having been bested in battle by a Christian nation. But in other writings, he's described as coming to this decision through his own interest and in eventual spiritual conversion.
0: His reign was one of relative peace within Denmark, although he did meet with a mix of success and failure in his efforts to expand Denmark's lands through conquest.
1: King Harald died in the autumn of 980. His son, Sven Forkbeard, may have been a rebellious upstart with eyes on the yelling throne, and one of his supporters, one of uh, Sven's supporters, may have been the one to have shot and killed the king dead with an arrow. Harald's body was interred at a church that he had begun construction on.
0: In 1820, excavators working in the burial mounds at Yelling discovered an empty tomb. The only things inside of it were a silver cup and some other small items. Dating the beams in the the tomb indicated that they were cut right around the time that Gorm the Old had died. But if the tomb was meant to hold the king, where was his body?
1: And that question actually wasn't answered until the early 1970s. Uh, In 1970, Gorm's remains were found in the remains of a wooden church that had been built by Harold after he was christened. And as part of this shift to Christianity, it's believed that Harold had his father reburied in the church rather than the mound.
0: After Gorm's remains were discovered, they were studied at Copenhagen's University and National Museum for several decades. Based on the studies of the remains, it's estimated that he was approximately 50 years old when he died, and that would have put his birth around the year 908. He was 5 foot 7, or 172 centimeters tall, and he had rheumatism in his lower vertebrae.
1: On August 30th of 2000, Gorm was reinterred at Yelling Church, and Denmark's royal family attended the ceremony.
0: As we alluded to earlier, the exact location of Queen Tira's burial has been lost, and we'll talk more about the significance of that in just a few moments. And that is going to involve a lot of rune
1: stone talk. But before we move on to those stones and the various interpretations around them, let's pause for a word from one of our sponsors. That sponsor is Squarespace. Squarespace. We absolutely love them. Both Tracy and I have websites with them. When it comes to putting together a website, it can be a little daunting. And you can think that you need to have skills and coding information that you may or may not have, but you still need that website. Hey, you don't need those skills that you think you need you will end up with a professional-looking site, regardless of your skill level. It's really intuitive. It's super easy to use. If you sign up for a year with Squarespace, they will get you a free domain. So you can just start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code, which is HISTORY, to get 10% off your first purchase. So there are two rune stones usually mentioned at Yelling, And that's in the central part of the Jutland Peninsula. And those two stones have been analyzed and interpreted by historians for years. There is not settled consensus about them. Part of their mystery comes from the fact that the practice of erecting commemorative rune stones appears to have been a fairly brief trend in the big picture. So unlike some other old cultural practices, we don't really have a particularly large sample set to inform interpretations. Plus, their age means that a lot of them, having been sitting outside this whole time, have had some degradation.
0: So the first smaller stone reads, King Gorm made this monument in memory of Tira, his wife, Denmark's adornment.
1: And the larger stone uh, reads, Harold, the king, bade do these sepulchral monuments after Gorm, his father, and after Tira, his mother. The Harold who won the whole of Denmark and all of Norway and made the Danes Christian.
0: These stones are located adjacent to one another between two nearly identical mounds. Each of the mounds is 70 meters or 76 yards in diameter and 11 meters or 12 yards high. The North Mound covers a burial chamber, but the South Mound doesn't. The stones sit just south of a nearby masonry church that's still in use. It's not the original church, though. This is a church that was built around the year 1100 to replace a wooden church on the site that had burned down. Uh, It was rebuilt several times over but before it was switched to a masonry church.
1: And the smaller stone, which we'll call the King Gorm Stone, uh, the original position of that stone is not known. Its current placement is where it's been since approximately 1630. And just prior to that, we know that it was used as a seat outside the church for some period of time. And this stone features three vertical lines of runes on the front, and one vertical line of runes on the back, and two snakes that are also on the back.
0: A larger herald stone has three sides, and on one of those... There's uh, what's believed to be the first image of Christ in Scandinavia. For a while, the image was actually believed to have been a portrait of Harold himself. But early in the 19th century, it was established that it was indeed Christ. This stone, during a restoration project in the early 1980s, was determined to be in its original position.
1: And there was actually a third stone found at Yelling in 1964, but it appears to be unrelated to the Gorm Harold Tira stones.
0: There are a couple of pretty interesting areas of discussion around these two stones. Did King Gorm raise a rune stone to honor his queen? Or did Harald do it as part of sort of a historical revision? So
1: this is where things get, to me, really fascinating and where they are very hotly debated. So the stones honoring Tira are notable because it was not really customary for rune stones to be raised for women. Denmark has... 277 known Viking-era rune stones. Uh, remember how we mentioned a little bit ago that they don't really have a huge data set to go on? 277 is really not that many. But of that number, only 12 of those stones commemorate women and two of those reference Tira. So that's a significant situation. Although there has also been a case uh, made that the reference to Denmark's adornment could actually be referencing Gorm, but that's not a particularly popular interpretation. Uh, the stones to Tira are even more unusual when you consider that these two are part of a group of only three known rune stones that were created at the command of kings. Other rune stones were raised by other people.
0: It's possible that more than two of those 12 stones dedicated to women are actually in honor of Gorham's wife, Tira. At least two other rune stones from the same time period also reference a woman named Tira, so... Is it very likely that there was another woman with the same name who was also inspiring the commissioning of multiple runestones who just happened to be in the same area of Denmark at the same time?
1: That seems a little bit coincidental, Uh, and it seems perhaps simply too coincidental for it to not all be the same woman. But on the flip side, even men weren't normally honored or commemorated in this way multiple times over either. There's actually only one man that we know of with multiple runestones. So it's just weird in a variety of ways. And one explanation for the multiple but allegedly unrelated mentions of a woman named Tira is that it was a common name in Jutland at the time.
0: Historian Brigitte Sawyer makes the case, though, that the assumption of the name's commonplace nature is based on only seven or eight possible instances of its having been used. Four or five of those are on runestones. So the logic of claiming the runestones are honoring multiple women of the same name. is pretty circular.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're using data to support that assertion that is the direct... Um... The, the direct thing that they're trying to prove out. So it gets really, really, uh, a little bit squirrely at that point. And the smaller of those two yelling stones thought to be erected by Gorm also has some linguistic characteristics which might give it away, uh, as being younger than we are intended to believe. The stone credited to Harold, the larger of the two, has words that run together, whereas the rune, stones that Gorm, or the rune stone that Gorm is supposed to have erected has dividing marks between the words. And that's a newer linguistic practice indicating that the Gorm stone may actually have come second.
0: We'll talk about why that may have been the case in just a moment. But first, we are going to pause for a brief word from a sponsor. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
3: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
1: So why would Harold have possibly erected a stone that seemed to be the work of his father and that it appeared he may be trying to pass off as that? And again, I'm referencing the work of Brigitte Sawyer, uh, but according to her, it may have been a way in which people asserted claims of inheritance. So we mentioned early on in the episode that Denmark was new to unification. Lords under Gorm likely competed with Gorm uh, for control of the lands that he eventually made his.
0: Tira would have been a very appealing marriage partner because she may have held significant power or prominence even before becoming Gorm's queen. Most likely as the daughter of someone who had additional land holdings that would then become part of her husband's kingdom. It's entirely possible that she outlived her husband and remarried. And then that would have created some question marks about who should inherit her holdings after her death. The additional rune stones that reference a woman named Tira may have been placed by the family she married into after Gorham died.
1: Sawyer suggests that it's possible that Harold not only reconstructed the past by placing a rune stone from his father to Tira, but that the unknown resting place of the queen is due to the fact that she may have been buried by another family in another place entirely uh, after having been remarried. Harold basically had to prove his place as son and heir and thus constructed the burial mounds at Yelling to establish himself as part of Tira's true or primary family and obscure the existence of another burial spot. Moreover, if the Gorm runestone was erected by Harold, it also serves as a precedent setter that Gorm was king, which literally carves
0: in stone something
1: that up to that point may have still been a matter of some dispute.
0: And remember, back to you at the top of the show, we talked about the morning gift from Gorm to Tira. If she did inherit Denmark upon his death as the culmination of this gift, it would very, very much be in Harold's interest not to let another family then inherit literally the entire country after his mother's death.
1: But, I and I know I keep saying this, it is important to note that these interpretations of the history of Gorm, Harold, and Tira and the Runestones are just that. They're interpretations, although they're definitely based in existing evidence. It's just viewed through different lenses. Historians continue to argue the various possibilities and details of this part of Denmark's history. But in any case, if the runestones and mounds were part of a carefully orchestrated edit of history on Harold's part, the plan worked because he is recognized as an early king of Denmark.
0: It's entirely possible that new excavations at Yelling will reveal additional information about Gorm and his family. The Yelling Mounds, Runic Stones, and Church are all a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and since 2007, excavations have unearthed evidence of massive, of a massive stone ship at the site, as well as a number of buildings that could indicate a fortress that was built by Harold.
1: And I believe
0: that those um,
1: excavations went on until late 2014. So a lot of those findings are still being analyzed and there could be big changes uh, based on that analysis. We will just have to keep an eye on it. Uh, but we mentioned that we would talk about how Harold's name ended up connected to technology And in 1996, when a wireless technology being worked on by Ericsson, Nokia, Intel, and eventually IBM needed a name, that project borrowed the name of Bluetooth. And that was because just as Harold had united Denmark in many histories, Bluetooth was intended to unite technologies with this wireless short-range link. And while it was intended initially only as a code name for the technology, like a development name, Bluetooth, of course, stuck. And that was more due to legal issues than anything else.
0: The original name for this technology was PAN for personal area networking, and it was too similar to many other trademark names. And the second choice, Radio Wire, was already trademarked by someone else, so the project's code name eventually became its official moniker.
1: And now when your mobile device has Bluetooth activated, you can see a small rune on your screen, and you can thank Harold Bluetooth for that too. That logo for Bluetooth technology is actually a combination of the runes for King Harold's initials. So in a fun way that history comes alive, you are carrying a reference to Denmark's Viking history in your pocket with you all the time if you have a smartphone with Bluetooth.
0: That's pretty cool. I know it's really like cool. <laughs> Now that you mention it, that does look like a rune. Yeah.
1: I almost felt foolish for never having had that thought. Once I read about it, I was like, "Well, of course, that's what it is." Well,
0: I I feel foolish because I've been working at HowStuffWorks.com for more than a decade, talking about Bluetooth sometimes, and I knew like I knew at a very basic level who it was named for, but the whole part where the the logo little icon thing is basically a rune, did not know that.
1: Yeah. It's cool stuff. So, uh, that is our, our discussion of the, uh, the yelling stones, which I, I really can't wait to see sort of what additional analysis comes out. We will link in our show notes to, um, Denmark's National Museum has kind of an ongoing site that updates with the archaeological stuff. There hasn't been a lot of, uh, there haven't been a lot of updates lately. I think, like I said, they're still doing analysis, but you can see all of the stages of, of the digs that they've done and how they've been very carefully preserving the area because it is in a place where, I mean, there's also neighborhoods around it. It's not like just a place out in the middle of nowhere. There's been development in that area. So, uh, it's a really pretty fascinating to look at all those pictures and see what they're doing and how they're, they're handling it. The stones are actually now encased in like these glass uh I don't want to say cabinetry, but that's the only word coming to mind but they're they're outside still, but they're encased to protect them, so you can see them uh they're basically on display because they're just sitting out there in between the mounds and in front
0: of the church. It's quite cool. I heard you also have some listener mail. You heard correct.
1: This listener mail is from our listener Roberta and it's a little bit of a throwback to our Declaration of Sentiments podcast uh, and the word obey used in marriage vows. So she says, Dear Holly and Tracy, first, of course, I love stuff you missed in history class. I've listened to it with great pleasure for a number of years now and you always delight and inform, so thank you. I just listened to the road to the Declaration of Sentiments in the process of moving and have quite a backlog of pods to catch up on. However, I'm mostly current now. As a personal aside, n- no one Everyone ever has to apologize for not mm-hmm. being current on the show. I'm not current on everything I watch or listen to by no. a long stretch.
0: <laughs> I took I took a train trip this past weekend and I listened to literally four episodes each of Judge John Hodgman and Sawbones that I was behind on on the trip.
1: Yeah, I love a road trip for that reason. I can let whoever else is in the car sack out and I can just play podcasts. But anyway, going back to Roberta's note, she said, you guys made some comments of disbelief about people wanting the word obey in their wedding ceremonies or more specifically not wanting it. I wanted to let you know why we specifically chose to include it. My husband and I were married by a justice of justice of the peace in February 1998 and had a big ceremony September of that year. It was a Renaissance style ceremony in a park with a friend officiating blessing our non-denominational wedding. I'm agnostic. My husband is now, but he was still a believer at the time. And we wanted traditional book of common prayer vows for authenticity, but also more so because it held some meaning for us. We discussed obey and came to the conclusion that it was important to us to include it. We each brought a child and some baggage and the idea that marriage was for life for us was very important we included obey to drive home the point to each other that we were in this for the long haul. The twist is that we said it to each other. It was a little tongue-in-cheek, but we toss it at each other every once in a while to drive home the fact that we made promises to each other that can't easily be broken. We're progressive people who've chosen somewhat traditional gender roles, and we're very aware that life is tenuous. Sometimes we need a reminder that the promises we've made to each other is the basis for everything else in our lives. So it is possible, though surely rare, that people on the left of the spectrum might choose to include it. I just thought maybe a different perspective might be interesting. Uh thank you for your diligent research and beautiful work. I look forward to many more wonderful podcasts from you. And Tracy, congrats on your upcoming nuptials. I can tell you that after 18 years and five kids, marrying each other was the best, coolest, most awesome thing my hubs and I have ever done. I wish both of you and Holly and Brian a lifetime of the love and peace we've had. Much love. Uh and she actually goes by Bobby, I realize, at the signature. I was looking at her email address uh name when I when I first referenced her as Roberta. Bobby, thank you. This was such a, a good email and a a nice reference. We've gotten a variety of feedback on that discussion. Yeah, well we Um,
0: uh, number one, thank you Bobby, that's very sweet. And then number two uh, we got some letters that made me think that maybe people, there were some people that maybe got really angry and started writing and then didn't get to the part where I was like if you want to make a choice to include this in your vows make the choice. The point is that you have a choice now. (laughs) Like it's not a thing yeah. that is thrust only upon women as a condition of getting married. Like, that's the thing that, that that's one of two things that blows my mind. And the other thing was that the story I was relating was from my officiant specifically, who is from, I think, probably the most progressive denomination that exists in the United States. And so it was startling to me that anyone would have her officiate their wedding and then also want a unilateral vow of obedience that seems a little contradictory to me to have like an extremely progressive uh religious aspect to the wedding then but then also want unilateral obedience that yeah. still it throws my mind a little bit
1: Yeah. Similarly, I think I relayed the story of my best childhood friend getting married and she had said, don't use obey. They had had a a last minute switcheroo in their efficient and he just subbed it out for the word serve, which was hilarious to all of us. (laughs) Um, But again, it was it was a thing that she had specifically chosen to exclude. And she, like me, is a little bit headstrong and... It, it was very humorous in that regard to watch her react because she's one of those people that has always been calm and cool and collected and fairly unflappable. <laughs> and it was just hilarious to me because I'm maybe a jerk friend. Uh, but everybody had a good chuckle. But anyway, w- um, I think our point is that what feels right for you is perfect. Like if people were offended by our, our saying that it wasn't for us, I, that was not my intent, certainly. So I apologize. No. Um, and, and
0: regardless of, of your feelings on the matter, I think it is a good thing for, for, People to have a choice in the matter now and.
1: Yeah, and I will say like all of the people that wrote us, even with very dissenting feelings about what we had said, what I, what really stood out to me and was interesting and, and I really liked was that all of them had talked about it from the point of view of having discussed it with their spouse. And yeah, with their partner ahead of time. And they were all like they got to that place together. It wasn't again, as you said, it was not forced on anyone. It was not a situation where there was no choice. It was right. something that they agreed upon and felt correct for them.
0: Not a case a big... where suddenly you're making a <laughs> vow in front of people and it's not a vow you can actually hold in your heart. <laughs>
1: Right. Right. So I, hopefully this discussion cleared up any confusion. Bobby, thank you for your lovely letter, because it really was a nice way to open that door. And, and
0: and thank you so much for your well wishes. Yes. So sweet. I
1: agree. Uh, Brian and I uh, will hit our 20th anniversary this year. And I still say, like, uh, best thing that ever happened to me. I didn't ever think I wanted to be married and then I met him and everything changed like immediately and, uh, for me that was absolutely the correct thing. Maybe not for everybody, but only you know your heart.
0: It's like in, (laughs) it's like in, uh, in, uh, in Amy Poehler's book. Good for her. Not for me, is the thing that we shall think of ourselves Correct. when we're talking about other people's decisions.
1: Correct. I mean, that comes up all the time in all walks of life, in all decisions of life. That is hard for some of, I mean, I have struggled with that before, where I'm like, that's not the way you should do it. But for that person, it might be. And who am I to say? Uh, if you would like to write to us and share your thoughts on such things or any of the history we've talked about today, you can do so at History Podcast at com. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history, We're on Twitter at in History or at mistinhistory.tumblr.com or on Pinterest at mistinhistory or on Instagram at mistinhistory. If you would like to research a little bit about what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent site, House of Works. type in the word Vikings in the search bar and you will get an article on how Vikings worked. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com for show notes, for an archive of every episode that's ever existed and for the occasional other digital goodie, uh, We hope you do visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and mistinhistory.com.
4: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind.
4: for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's
3: right. I used to have so many men.